Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. As I said, this morning we're starting a new series. It'll last about five, six weeks. It's called Taming the Tongue. We're going to be looking today at the power of our words. We live in a world filled with hateful words, vindictive words, deceitful words, and grumbling words. Isn't that true? Look at what you see on the internet. Look at the constant backbiting and vindictiveness we see on the news. What I think has happened is the way the world operates with their words has started to rub off on the Christian church. And many Christians can be bickering, deceitful, and grumbling with their words. But God's plan is a little different. God's plan is that our words as Christians would be distinctively different. That even without saying the name of Jesus, people would know there's something different about us because of the way we use our words in kindness and in truth and in gentleness that would stand out like a sore thumb in the crazy world around us. That's what we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. Today we're going to be looking at James chapter 3, the first 12 verses. So if you have your Bibles, get at James chapter 3. While you're turning there, a few other things. Pastor Jordan and I are going to do things a little differently. He's our Spencer campus pastor. We're going to alternate back and forth between campuses during this series. That'll give me a chance to know the Spencer campus a little better, and it'll give you a chance to know Pastor Jordan a little better. Before we read the text, I want to tell you a story about the importance of our words and the power of our words. This true story took place in 1899. There were four newspaper reporters that all ended up in the Denver, Colorado train station. They were desperate to, to find a story for the Sunday morning edition of their paper. They could find nothing. They had gone to the train station hoping that maybe a celebrity would come into town on the evening train and they could interview that person and have something to write about, but nobody was there. Finally, one of the frustrated reporters said to the other three, Let's just go get a beer. They went and <laughs> had some beer, and as they were talking about it, one of them who was getting a little more drunk than the others said, I'm going to make up a story for tomorrow's edition. The other three laughed, but the more they drank and the de desperate they became, that sounded like a good idea. So they decided they would report on the same fictional story, and they'd make something up. They couldn't do a domestic story because that would be something you could check out in the country and their lie would be discovered. So they decided to do an international story. Maybe they'd make up an international story from completely the other side of the world. One of them had the idea of, why don't we do a story about China? No one would ever know anything about that. And the story became this, that in the Drenver train station that evening, some engineers had stopped by on their way to the East Coast, that they were off to, the, to China to bid on a job to demolish the Great Wall of China. Of course, they didn't know much about the Great Wall of China, obviously. The next morning, on the Sunday morning edition, all four newspapers carried that fictional story. 
The problem is, now that it was in four newspapers, it was more believable than ever. And that story began to be recirculated by other newspapers, even all the way to the East Coast. And then it made its way all the way to China itself. What do you think the Chinese felt about that? They weren't happy that Americans were sending engineers to their country to help them demolish their national monument. There was a group of Chinese that were especially upset about it. They were called the Boxers. It's a secret society, and they were very opposed to their country becoming involved with the Western countries. That story, that fictional story, kicked off what is known as the Boxers' Rebellion in China, where 100,000 Chinese died, 33,000 Chinese Christians lost their life, and over 200 Western missionaries were killed. And after Paul Harvey told that story, he said this, never, never, never underestimate the power of your words. And with the idea that we should never underestimate the power of our words, that brings us to James chapter three. So I'd ask you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Follow along in your copy of God's word as I read the first 12 verses, which will be the text we'll study this morning. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be drudged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed or has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And that ends the reading of the word of God. You can be seated. We're going to look at these verses under the question of why do my words matter? Why are they so important? And the first thing we see is this. The words of a teacher direct the course of a life. Teachers have great power. Teachers influencing young and untrained minds 
are like clay in the hands of a potter. Haven't we seen that today? We're children. School-age children have their whole sexuality and understanding distorted by woke teachers teaching transgender ideologies. Haven't we seen that with elementary school teachers and junior high or high school teachers teaching children that they came about as a product of evolution, not God's special creation? And then... Students, if they've been able to maintain their faith and grow in their faith in high school, then they go off to college and end up under a godless professor professor who challenges their faith and who undermines their faith. And they come home from college, and I've talked to these kids, and they're so spiritually confused because of teachers who twisted and distorted their mind and their life. Teachers have incredible power on people's worlds through their words. Which is why James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. In the early church, Christian teachers were given incredible amounts of respect. It was a very sought-after position. And especially to the church that James write, James, James is writing to the Jewish Christian the church, which was a descendant of the synagogue. In the synagogues, teachers were given great respect. Uh, those teachers were called rabbis. Maybe you've heard of that. Rabbi literally means my great one. And it was a highly revered position if you were a Jewish rabbi. To give you an idea, the reverence that rabbis possessed, uh, they were said to be more important than your own parents. If your parents and your rabbis were taken captive, you were to ransom your rabbi before your own mother and father. And the Jews reasoned this way. While your mother and father brought you into this world, your rabbi was the one who held the ticket to the next world. So he was even more important than your parents. Jewish rabbis would sometimes, they would be taken in by widows, and they'd live off of that widow's kindness and that money, really sponging off of it, in my opinion. But it's because they were so highly respected and sought after. So Jewish Christian teachers had that same kind of respect. Uh, they were re revered uh, in the early church. The problem is, Many Jewish Christian teachers were trying to be teachers, but they really weren't qualified to be teachers. You ever seen that, where somebody's a teacher and they really don't cut the mustard? Many times people wanted to be teachers because of the respect that came with it, the power that came with it, the attention that came with They were trying to build up their own egos in the position. And here's the first sub-point for you. Many teachers want attention, power, and control not to humbly serve. This is what Jesus says. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And he says, not many of you should seek to be teachers because sometimes teachers just want that position so they can build up their own ego and power. The next thing he says is this. Teachers will be judged more strictly by God. That comes right out of the next part of the verse. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
being a teacher, especially a spiritual teacher who communicates the word of God carries great responsibility. God judges those who will stand and teach his word very strictly because they have a huge amount of influence over others through their speech. You and I, we know young people, we know adults who have been gravely led astray by unqualified spiritual teachers who stand in a pulpit in a church and don't tell the truth, who don't faithfully teach the word of God, who stand in a pulpit and say Jesus Christ didn't really rise from the dead, who stand in a pulpit and say the Bible cannot be trusted as the word of God, who say that, that homosexuality is not a sin of which we need to repent. No, it's a lifestyle that we should celebrate. Who stand in a pulpit and say premarital sex is normal, it is healthy, and it's good. Who stand in a pulpit and say marriage is just a mere cultural formality. It's okay to live together. You don't necessarily have to be married together. Those kind of spiritual teachers who are not faithfully upholding the word of God have led hundreds of thousands of people astray. You and I know it. And the Bible says that because of their teaching position and the influence they will have on others, they will be judged more strictly by Jesus. Jesus also says this, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they've entrusted much, they will demand the more. That anyone who is a Christian pastor or teacher, God expects a lot from them, and Jesus will judge them with greater strictness. I don't know if you realize this, but one day each and every one of us will stand before Jesus, and each and every one of us will have our lives judged by Jesus. Now, we will not be judged for our sins. Jesus has died for our sin. Our sin is completely forgiven. Amen? The scriptures say this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But while we are saved by Jesus and we're forgiven by Jesus, what we have done with our lives after we have come to Jesus is what we will be judged for by Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 14, 12, same idea. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The Bible pictures our lives this way. The foundation which brings us into our relationship with Christ is what Jesus Christ has done for us. But once we have the foundation of being saved by Jesus, we, with our lives, we build on that foundation. We may build with wood, hay, or straw, or we can build with gold, silver, and precious gems. And one day when we stand before Jesus, what we have built on the foundation of Christ will ultimately be judged by Jesus and will test to see if it lasts. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 3. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, 
wood, hay, or straw. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. James says, those who are teachers on this day will be more strictly judged by Jesus because the words they use in their life is so influential on the lives of other people. And personally, uh, this has been very sobering to me as a pastor that I will be judged more strictly by Jesus. It has made me realize I have to take my job very seriously. I want to work as absolutely as hard as I can with research, with studying, with writing, with memorizing, with preparing. Not so you like a message. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if you like it or not. If Jesus doesn't like the message, that's a problem. Because one day I have to stand before him and see what he says about what I have done. This is why pastors who wait till Saturday night to do their message, and then they work on it while watching television, what is known in my profession as Saturday night specials, they're in trouble. They really are. This is why pastors who spend the time in the pulpit talking politics instead of Jesus, they're in trouble. Because the church is about Jesus Christ. Teachers, by the way, I don't believe will be just judged by their words. But teachers will also be judged based on how they lived. Because isn't it true that there's many things you learn from the teacher not by what they said, but by what they did? That's how our kids learn things from us. Talk to your kids. It's not always what you said that they will remember. It's what you did that they will remember. We teach with our actions. The other reason that we have to be careful about being teachers is this. We all stumble in our words. In James chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. This word stumble sometimes is translated as sin, but it's a particular kind of sin. It means to err, to offend, to fall short, or just be off a little bit, not quite hit the mark with what you're trying to do. Has anybody had that problem with their words? You say one thing, but it came out and was understood as a different thing? Oh, we do that all the time. Now, if you're a teacher and your words are being influential upon others and you're going to be judged very strictly by your words and then the words are the things that we're most often off on when we speak them, it's like a double whammy, isn't it? Just not good. James chapter 3, verse 2 says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. The intent here is that many times we try to say things to encourage people, but our words end up discouraging people. We are just off a little bit. 
But there's some good application here. Let me mention this. If we do learn to keep our words in check, James says, you'll be able to keep your whole body in check. You want to focus on becoming spiritually mature? You want to focus on becoming like Christ? Focus on one thing in particular, that your words may be consistently and always pleasing to Jesus. If our words are always pleasing to Jesus, the rest of our life just sort of falls in line right after it. That's one of the things we'll learn today. If we can focus on just that one thing, great amounts of spiritual maturity take place in the rest of our life. Incidentally, if you struggle with your words, you're not alone. Some of our great Bible heroes that we admire, they struggled with their words too. Like Job, he struggled. It says this in Job 40 verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I'll just shut up now. I really shouldn't have said what I said earlier. That's Job. Or how about Isaiah? The Hebrew guy writes a great book. And in the book he says this, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah says, I just don't get my words right. Or how about Moses? That's a pretty big guy in the Bible. He struggled with his words. Psalm 106, 33. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. You ever say the wrong thing when you get angry? That's Moses, not just you and me. So you're not alone if you struggle with your words. But there's something else that James chapter 3, verse 2 tells us, which is this. The words of my mouth reveal the maturity of my life. James says, if anyone is not at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the rest of his body. Well, the word perfect here does not mean sinless. It means spiritually mature. If someone is able to consistently use words in such a way that honor Christ and are pleasing to Christ, that reveals the fact that they are truly spiritually mature. But if at one moment they use words that are pleasing to Christ, and then later they're gossiping, they're grumbling, they're deceiving, that reviews, reveals a lack of spiritual maturity in their life. Because the words that we speak always reveal what is the true state of our own heart. Jesus says this, Matthew 12, 35, the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So consistently pure speech in a life reviews, reveals great spiritual maturity in someone's heart. Now Jesus says that if someone is a teacher or a preacher, it really doesn't matter how much spiritual insight they have. It does not matter how much verbal eloquence they possess. It does not matter what kind of capabilities they have to captivate and hold an audience to listen. If they cannot keep their mouth and words consistently in line, they better just hang it up because they will be judged for their words very severely by Jesus 
and their words have great influence and power on others. And if they cannot keep their words consistently in line, it's because they don't possess spiritual maturity in their life. So the next thing as we continue is this. My words make a big difference. Verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. James is giving us some practical illustrations of how a little tongue can control big things. Horses are pretty big. Do you know you can take a 550-pound weight and put it on a horse's back and it isn't even strained? I don't think any of us can lift 550 pounds. Not a problem for a horse. My my daughter, she likes to run. You know about that. Uh, She likes to run the 400, and she can run it in just under a minute. A horse can run the 425 seconds. That's fast. Horses are extremely powerful, especially some breeds. Have you ever heard about the Shire breed of horse? Anyone? Yeah, okay. Uh, I did some research. I think they are the strongest breed. There's a picture of two Shire horses in 1924 that were pulling on sleds 45 tons of logs. That is power. But the interesting part is, you know what you have to do to control that much power? Just put a little bit in the mouth and pull the tongue the way you want it to go. And it completely controls a horse, making a horse stop, turn left, turn right, just by the tongue. It's also true about ships. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Let me show you a picture of my small rudder. And you say, small rudder? That's not a small rudder. That's a big rudder. That's because you haven't seen the size of the ship. The dead weight of the ship is 120,000 plus tons. You put the oil in it, it's another 750,000 tons. Steered by a small rudder in whatever direction the pilot wants it to go. People's tongues can make a huge difference. The tongue of Adolf Hitler kicked off World War II and tons of decimation in Europe and around the world. The tongue of Winston Churchill sustained England for its finest hour. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. If you learn how to speak well in life, you will generally be blessed in life. But if you don't use your words well and you use your words poorly, it can even lead to your own death. That sounds like a proverb, but does that actually ever prove true? I'll give you an illustration. Have you guys followed the Jordan Neely story on the news? The man who was the chokehold and died in the chokehold? Does that remember anything? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. The rest of you are like, yep, I know that one. As far as I understand, Jordan Neely didn't actually touch anyone, did he? 
He didn't physically hurt anyone. It was all in what he said while on the subway. I'm ready to die. I don't care anymore. It was the words of his mouth that left people in so much fear that someone put him in a chokehold from which he literally died from. Life and death are in the power of our tongue. Here's another one, Proverbs 15:4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Have you ever had that time where you're depressed and you're broken and you're in the dumps and a friend or a spouse just uses gentle words with you, kind words that bring life to you, that help carry you through? Anybody been there? Yeah, I think all of us have been there. Gentle words can be so healing in tough times. But words that are perverse, that are harsh, that are nasty, that are deceitful, they can leave a scar. Hard to forget. You almost never can take them back because you can still hear those words echoing in your mind after they came out of someone's mouth. That brings us to the next point James points out. My words can be incredibly destructive. Verses five through six. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Hot words coming out of our mouth, landing on the dry tinder of a wounded heart can start a destructive fire in the life of others. Fires that often rage out of control and create terrible damage. You know about how fire gets out of control. Maybe you remember the El Dorado wildfires in California and how they were started. It was a gender reveal party in a park. You know, they pop out pink or blue, whatever the color of the kid is. They had a firework that did that. But the sparks from that firework lit some dry tinder on fire. That eventually burned down 23,000 acres, destroying five homes and taking a firefighter's life who was trying to stop it. All from a little spark that was placed in just the right place at just the wrong time. How about 1996 in Norway? You know how kids like to celebrate the last day of school? And kids, don't you talk about wanting to just burn your books because finally school is over? Thankfully, you haven't burned your books. But one kid in Norway actually did decide to burn his books. He took out a lighter. He lit his books on fire during recess. The problem was the books were lit on fire next to a shed. And the shed was next to the school. And by the time the school day was over, there was no more school because a little spark of fire got completely out of control. Words of our mouth are the same way. Sparks of fire from our lips that contain incredibly destructive power that can land in someone's heart and someone's life and create far more damage than we realize. And once a conflict is burning out of control, it really doesn't matter if it was intentional or not because it's really hard to stop a fire when it's out of control, isn't it? 
Exactly. An example of that would be marital counseling. I sometimes do marital counseling when people are going through difficult times. And when a couple comes into my office, they've never touched each other. They've never hurt each other, physically abused each other in any way. The problem has always been the words. It's a sarcastic comment that was said, and it was heard by a spouse, and then it hurt, and it made them angry. And they said a nasty comment back, and that was heard by the other spouse on the dry tinder of their heart, and they got angry, and it kept doing this. You know, this gets worse all the time. Nobody's going to back off. And before you know it, the fire is burning out of control. And 30 years of marriage, four kids later, it's all been burned to dust. Because of the raging fire that started with words. That's the way it goes. How many of you would burn down someone's house in this church? I wouldn't dare do that. I wouldn't go to someone's house and light a fire. That would be arson. They would arrest me for that. But when we gossip about others, when we speak slanderous words about others, when we belittle others behind their back, the sparks of our lips are lighting little fires in people's lives. And before you know it, someone's reputation is burned to ashes. Oh, their house may still be standing, but their reputation and their friendships are all gone. My mom used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, maybe it's best you don't say anything at all. And mom has it right. Doesn't mom always have it right? If you can't say anything nice, just don't say anything. Most churches don't physically burn to the ground. And if they do physically burn to the ground, they usually are rebuilt even better than they were before. But there is a way that churches get burnt to the ground and they never rebuilt. And that is when they burn to the ground from the people on the inside, not the buildings on the outside. It's when there's grumbling, divisiveness, bickering, and people refuse to humble themselves and they speak in bad ways about one another as they get frustrated with another, and the fire starts to rage, and before you know it, the fabric of the church, the relationships of the church, the love in the church is incinerated to nothing, and the building is still standing strong, but the pews are completely empty because the fire of words has burned a church to a ground. James also says this, that the words of our mouth stain the whole body. Did you ever stain a shirt or stain a pair of pants? And now, even though it's a perfectly good pair of pants or shirt, you just can't wear it anymore. There's nothing you can do to get the stain out, even if nobody else notices the stain. Whenever you put on that shirt, you notice the stain. And what he says is the words of our mouth can so stain our lives in the eyes of other, others that whenever they look at us, they cannot forget, or forget what we said to them. Those words continue to ring in their heads. You say, well, we're a church. <laughs> Aren't we supposed to forgive each other? Yeah, we forgive. But don't you still hear those words when you're around that person? Oh, yeah. 
we can forgive, but it's almost impossible to completely forget. Words can stain a life permanently. And here's another sobering thought. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. When we stand before Jesus, it's those side comment words, those I wasn't thinking about it, but I just said it words that we have to answer to Jesus for. Man, that is sobering about the seriousness of the power of our words. We have to also not just consider our spoken words, but we have to consider our written words. Statistics tell us that 95% of children ages 13 to 17 are involved in social media. A young girl named Molly Russell, she was going through a time of depression. And rather than talk to her friends about it, she talked to her social media buddies about it. Six months after she started wrestling with that, she committed suicide. As they did the investigation on it, they found that she had interacted with over 2,100 social media posts on suicide. Posts that instructed her on how to take her life. Posts that encouraged her to take her life. And she followed through on it. The British court actually found Facebook liable in her death because they had done nothing to protect a young child from hateful, hurtful, vicious words and instructions and encouragement to take her own life. That's the power of words. Number four, my words can't be tamed by my own strength. Verses seven and eight. For every beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. You can check out YouTube this afternoon. You'll find elephants that can play soccer. You'll find birds that can sing songs. And of course, there's always the famous Airbud. He plays every sport better than I can. Because birds and animals and reptiles, they've been trained by human beings. But the one thing we cannot tame is our own tongue. Alcoholics have become sober. Drug addicts have been able to give up addictions. But the one thing that nobody can tame perfectly is their own tongue. The last point is this. The words I, reveal, I speak reveal a double standard in my heart. Speaking of our words and our tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James has talked about the power of our words, the incredible destructive power of our words to ruin someone's life. Now he goes to the problem of our words, which is this, that our words are not consistent. Our words reveal a double standard in our heart. How many of us have the Christian lingo down real good on Sunday, but we're cussing on Monday? 
for speaking our sarcastic comment to our spouse on Tuesday. Then we're gossiping to our friends over coffee on Wednesday. Then on Thursday on social media, we're putting out a nasty post of what we don't like and how foolish somebody else is. And James says that is not the way, the way a Christian is to live. We're to be consistent in our words. Our words should be consistently pleasing to God, not just sporadically pleasing to God. So this is our, one of our main takeaways. I put it in the bottom of your outline. We should strive to have speech that is consistently, not sporadically, honoring to God. And on the back, I have these applications for you. Number one, I want you to come out of this message, you must understand the power of our words. Our words are not just words. They can make or break someone's life. Number two, we must understand that spiritual maturity is consistently using our words to honor God. When someone's words are not consistently pleasing to God, it reveals spiritual immaturity in their life. As I put down here, acting one way on Sunday, but gossiping, grumbling, and distorting the truth on Monday is spiritual immaturity. It doesn't matter if a person is knowledgeable. It doesn't matter if they're witty or even if they're a senior saint. The prime measure of spiritual maturity is our words. Now James also said, no one can tame the tongue. So what are we supposed to do about it? Here I've given you a couple action steps to take this week on how we can tame our tongue. First, ask God for help to speak and act in ways that are consistently pleasing to him. As the scripture tells us, what we say is simply a reflection of our heart. The only one who can change our heart is Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with your speech today, being consistently pleasing to our Lord and Savior, Ask for help from God and ask him to change your heart, which will change your speech. Second, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Isn't that what gets us in trouble? When we hear something and then we react and say what comes to mind? James says, slow down, bite your lip, listen long, speak slow. Next, remember that we will give an account for every careless word. That's very convicting. Refuse to engage in unwholesome, gossipy, and whiny conversations. Well, that's going to be interesting. When you're in a conversation where somebody's gossiping, to say, I I'm not going to be part of this. I don't want to listen to it. I don't want to repeat it. And I don't want to contribute to it. E is this. Let the struggle to master our mouth remind us of the depth of our sin and drive us to the grace of Jesus. Over the next five to six weeks when we're in this series, if you're like me, you're going to find yourself failing with your speech again and again, constantly going back to Jesus, asking for help. And when that happens, don't get discouraged. Just remember, this reminds us of our depravity and how much we need God's grace to change us. And then is this, immerse myself in the living word, and watch how it transforms my spoken word. The more we put our finger in the text, the more you will find Jesus Christ changing your life. Now, I want to close with a story I didn't get to in the first service, but Paul, I do want to get to it in this service because I think it's important. 
this story came out of the Chicago Tribune. I ran across it when I was studying. It has to do with a high school state playoff football game that took place in Illinois. You know how those games go. Uh, everybody's pretty amped up for them. They usually go into overtime, and this game went into overtime and overtime again, and finally one team was decided as the winner. But the losing team, and particularly the fans, were sore losers. Many of the fans said the reason they lost had to do with one particular referee. One of the fans even followed him home 65 miles and sat outside of his house for two hours. That week, a number of the other fans of the losing team decided they would email him or call him and just tell him how bad of a referee he was. One after the other, those emails and those phone calls came like nails in a coffin. That man was already going through some difficulties at 36 years old. The end of that week, he attempted suicide. How would you like to have been? Would you go to his funeral? If he had killed himself, could you look in the eyes of his mother and father that had lost a son and your words contributed towards it? Could you look in the eyes of his wife and his little children, knowing that your words, your hateful words, were like venom into his soft, tender heart. It was a tough game. It was a hard game. He was in a super high-pressure situation trying to do his best. Now, thankfully, he didn't die. But I'll tell you what those words did. Those words stained the lives of every one of those people so difficult for him to ever look at those parents again and see them the same. Knowing the words that they said consistently, coordinated, contributed to him getting so depressed at a tough time in his life, he tried to kill himself. Folks, my words, I don't want to have words that tear people down. I don't want to have words that ruin people's lives. I want to speak the truth. But I want to make sure I build people up. Over these next five or six weeks, as we look at this series on taming the tongue, will you join me? Join me in being consistent and in praying, God, help my words become consistently pleasing to you. I do not have, want to have words that tear people down and take life from them, but I want to be a man or woman that uses my words to give life to people and build them up. And after these six weeks, Jesus, I pray that I would be known as spiritually mature, consistently using my words to give life, not to take it away. Heavenly Father, we are just reminded in this passage about the incredible power of our words. And we want to confess, so many times we have used our words in inappropriate and unwholesome ways. We have started little fires, burning down people's reputations, incinerating relationships. Lord, forgive us for that. Holy Spirit, please transform us from the inside out. May at the end of these six weeks, may our words be words that give life, not take it away. May we be radically different because of what you have done in our heart and lives, Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Christ, amen.
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.